The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is our occasional reviewer, Simon Cooper, whose new book is called Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. Simon, welcome. Now, I mean, obviously, to some extent, the thesis of your book is set out in its title, but we've heard a lot of play about, you know, the old Etonian cabal, and yet you, you, you want to refocus the attention a little bit in this, don't you? Is that Yeah, I think that too much has been made of Eton. I think Oxford is actually a more powerful network. It was different in the David Cameron era because really for Cameron, his tribe was Eton. He came from a kind of hereditary Etonian family. Etonians are the people he was closest to, so he assembled them around him in power, people like Ed Llewellyn and uh, Oliver Letwin, Joe Johnson. With Boris Johnson now, you see in his era, it's a broader cast of Oxford private schoolboys who've come in and out and played different roles at various times. Johnson himself, but also Daniel Hannan, who's the thinker of Brexit, sort of the Karl Marx of Brexit, sketches out the vision, works on it for 25 years, makes it happen. Dominic Cummings, Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg is an Etonian, but it's a much broader cast. And actually, I think power in Britain, post-war Britain, lies very much at Oxford, the university that has produced 11 of the 15 post-war prime ministers. In fact, the only prime minister to go to any university other than Oxford since the war is Gordon Brown, who went to Edinburgh. Now, why is it that Oxford, rather than, say, Cambridge, seems to have this stranglehold? I mean, I can see how in, in one generation you could say, OK, people bring their friends in and... That's why you end up with, with a group of university pals, you know, as it were, running, running the government or holding key roles and working with each other that way. But this is obviously something that goes back, as you say, you know, 11 or 15 prime ministers, generationally. Why is it Oxford? I think the main reason is the Oxford Union, the debating society, is just more prestigious and that perpetuates itself than the Cambridge Union. So the Cambridge Union has never produced a UK prime minister. And so if you're an 18-year-old aspiring politico and you want to go to a university where politics is in the air, where the union holds elections every single term, so it's incredible training for future politicians every term, you're you know, scheming with other politicos about how to put together a slate, as it's called, you go to Oxford and you go to Oxford and you hear all the debates and you participate in the debates, you learn the tricks, you learn how to speak well, and so, you know, even someone like Margaret Thatcher, who was barred from the union at the time because of her gender, she comes to Oxford and she becomes president of the Oxford Union, Oxford University Conservative Association, which is also a very powerful operation. Now, I mean, you, maybe we should explain for those listeners who aren't completely familiar with the setup, what, what you mean by the Oxford Union, because it's not the same as a student union, is it? Uh, not at all, no. The Oxford Union is a debating society set up 200 years ago next year in the centre of Oxford, a very large purpose-built debating chamber, kind of gentleman's club ambiance with library, 
leather sofas all over the place. And they have very prominent speakers up all the time. Richard Nixon gave a famous, uh, you know, participated in a famous talk and debate there. So it's buzzing with politics. And its former presidents include Boris Johnson, Ted Heath, Gladstone. Former officers include Harold Macmillan and Theresa May. So A, it organizes debates, and B, it organizes elections, which for these people is just incredibly exciting and glamorous. You're 20 years old and you're elected president of the union, as, as Johnson was. It's sort of the most exciting event in your life, and you feel that number 10 Downing Street is within reach. Yeah. Why is it that... I mean, some people would say, look, having a university that educates people to a very high standard and that trains them for political life in this kind of dry run thing that is the union would be a good thing rather than a bad thing. I have two objections to it. One, I mean, you say educates to a very high standard. Sometimes, yes. I think the university system, the Oxford system, is over-reliant on the tutorial where you know you write an under-researched essay typically you maybe written overnight but elegant five or six pages no footnotes in the 80s you go in you read it out to your tutor the tutor points out the holes in your arguments and then you spend an hour verbally dancing your way around those holes of course the tutor can usually see through what you're doing he or she knows much more about the subject than you ever will but often can't really be bothered i mean why should they spend a lot of effort if you want to waste your university education on drinking and hanging out at the union, that's your choice. So it, it, what the Oxford system specializes in, especially in the arts, which is the majority of Oxford, is learning how to speak well and write well, which are useful gifts, but often at the expense of substance, as I think we've seen at times during the, the management of the COVID pandemic, for example. So it's, it's a very kind of thin education and people sound better than they are. That's a core objection I have to it. And it leads to this British political style, which is very heavily focused on, it encourages the style very heavily focused on rhetoric. So that now we're in the position that the most entertaining speaker of his generation is the prime minister without obvious interest in policy or in management. The other problem with Oxford, especially until the last four or five years, was that the pipeline to it was very heavily dominated by public school boys. Yeah. I mean, this anxiety about rhetoric, I've, I've got a certain amount of skin in the game here because I, I write about rhetoric and, and I'm generally sort of in favour of it. Isn't it the case that rhetoric itself is kind of the, the cornerstone of, of the democratic process? I mean, we can't really do democracy without rhetoric, can we? Well, rhetoric can disguise rhetoric can a rhetorician can be a much drier but more competent politician because he she sounds better so i'm actually quite suspicious of rhetoric i i have to say i know this won't go down well with all your readers but i tend to prefer the german way where since hitler there's been enormous suspicion of charismatic speakers and so you get consciously boring leaders like angela merkel and olaf scholz who don't kind of seem more than they are. I think like many people, I was always enchanted by the commons and the wits and the, the repartee, and I've become more suspicious of it. Well, tell me a little bit about your own locus standard, because you, you, you write this more in sorrow than in anger, or maybe, <laughs> maybe in anger, but as someone who went through Oxford yourself, didn't you? But you had a slightly different angle on it than the people you'd see as your 
you know, anti-heroes here? I grew up mostly outside Britain, mostly in the Netherlands. My schooling was largely there. And so I returned to England age 16, finished school, went to Oxford. And so when I arrived there, I saw it very much from the outside as a sort of quasi-foreigner. And so, yeah, I mean, I did sort of marvel at it all. But I have to say, Oxford also formed me in being able to speak and write as my main career skills. And so when I see someone like Johnson, who is not a manager, is not a policymaker, but he speaks and writes well, he's kind of operating at a higher level of what I do myself, you know. So I see in his shortcomings, I see my own as well. I mean, was the, was a, that one of the spurs to writing the book? I mean, did you have a kind of like, God, I remember these guys, you know, they were the stars when I was at Oxford in the 80s. Now look where they are. Where did we all go wrong sort of thing? I mean, is there a personal animus yeah, I mean, behind I, the book? I don't feel a particular animus to these people. I see it more anthropologically. It's also not a book written sort of to um, say, oh, isn't Brexit terrible? Because that struck me as pointless. You know, the country will always be divided over Brexit. Hardly anyone has changed their mind. It was much more to understand how we got Brexit and the current ruling caste. And the night of the referendum, as I watched them traipse across my TV screen, I thought, I know exactly where these people come from. Johnson, who was there just before me, but Daniel Hanan, the thinker of Brexit, a contemporary of mine, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he and I arrived at Oxford exactly the same day. I still see him, a rail-thin 18-year-old, you know, traipsing down uh, Broad Street, dressed in a double-breasted suit like a Victorian vicar. So I, I knew where these people come from, and the... Epigraph of the book is from Napoleon, maybe apocryphal, but Napoleon supposedly said to understand a man, you have to understand the world as it was when he was 20. And what was that world? What was the Oxford of the 80s? Because you, you say you know, in your epilogue to the book, you know, Oxford has changed less than you'd like it to, but it's different. What was distinctive about the Oxford of the 80s? What was the sort of vibe there when you arrived? It was, it was more amateurish. I mean, you could work hard and someone like Dominic Cummings or Ed Balls worked very hard. But you didn't have to. So someone like Johnson did not. And you were left alone to, to party, to have fun. There was a kind of Shades of Brideshead, the TV series, which had uh, been very big in Britain at the start of the 80s. In the, in the Thatcher era, the public school boys had regained confidence. And it was OK to be wealthy. It was OK to go to independent school. Thatcher said that. And so they were kind of letting it all hang out. Whereas in the social democratic era of Britain from, say, 1945 to 1979, the rich kept much quieter. So in the 80s, there was this kind of pride and wealth. And then I think a very big change is Thatcher, who had been, you know, who is the heroine of these people. She had always been quite pro-European, was building the single market with Jacques Delors, the European commissioner. Until in the late 80s, she starts to realize, hang on, the single market's going to be accompanied by more political integration. I don't like that. And so she gives this Bruce speech in 1988, warning against a kind of European superstate encroaching on Westminster. And to these Tory public schoolboys at Oxford, this is just a dreadful shock because ruling Britain is their prerogative. It's what they're going to do when they're grown up. They always knew when they were at Oxford, they would go on to rule Britain. And they certainly didn't want, you know, Brussels bureaucrats meddling with their own power. So she kind of inspires them into Euroscepticism, Dan Hanan being a prime example, which climaxes, as we know, 30 years later. But isn't, I mean, you read it as, in fact, I think you say expressly in one of the chapters, you know, Brexit essentially is a job protection scheme 
for entitled members of the upper classes who expect to rule Britain. I mean, you've said as much here. Isn't there a legitimate argument that, you know, Mrs Thatcher, who was certainly not a member of those classes, said, you know, the issue here is sovereignty, not having toffs rule Britain like they always did. And that therefore, you know, the, the argument behind Brexit for these people isn't simply self-interested, that there is a genuine ideological point of principle there, that sovereignty does matter to them. Look, I mean, 17 million people voted for Brexit. Nigel Farage, who's not a key figure in the book, represents a whole other wing of the Brexit movement. This is not a book explaining why Britain voted for Brexit, because people had all their own reasons and sovereignty was there in the mix as one of, one of the many reasons. And you can make a very legitimate argument about sovereignty and then, you know, Remainers can say, ah, oh, but you don't actually have that much sovereignty because you end up observing the standards of the single market, etc. But that's not really what I'm looking at in the book. What I'm looking at is the people, the conservative Oxford public schoolboys who led most of the Brexit wing, who then went into alliance with Farage and with the section of the British media. And then when they'd won, they jettisoned Farage, who they'd never liked anyway. And, you know, he had brought on board a lot of the working class. And then these people go on to rule the country. So post-Brexit, Johnson and the people around him ascend back to power. So if you look at the motives of that group of people who are very important because they are the, the group that leads the Brexit movement and then implements Brexit now, I do think that their personal careers are a very important part of why they care. Yeah. I mean, someone like Dan Hannan, who I think is, is interesting in this, because, you know, if you, there are arguments made often that say Boris doesn't really believe it, that he, you know, had an eye on the main chance. But Dan was sort of stumping around, crying in the wilderness, you know, for 20 or 30 years before you know, anti-Europeanism looked like anything like a path to power. I mean, would you not credit him with a sort of ideological rigour? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I say in the book, Dan Hanan is a true believer. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg is a true believer. They, these people are not cynical about Brexit. But if you look at why people believe the things they do, often it has also to do with their personal place in the world. And the personal place of these people is that at AC19, they could project themselves forward into Westminster decades hence. They wanted to be prime minister. And so they also were attracted to glory. I mean, Britain has had, for better and worse, a very glorious modern history. The empire, the world wars, creating a lot of the culture that suffused the world, Peter Pan to Alice in Wonderland, to 1984, television. And so much of it had done, been done by their particular cast, the kind of Oxbridge, and or public school male caste. And so they found themselves in the 80s living in this rather less glorious country, which was a sort of outpost of the European economic community. And they did hanker for glory, and they hankered for a, a, a role in that glory themselves, you know, sitting atop a great power like their fathers and grandfathers had. And they saw that the kind of status of Britain had seeped away, is a sort of inevitable country of... 60 or 70 million people in a, in, a, in a much bigger world than before with new powers. It was Britain's superpower status just really couldn't last, but they, that upset them personally. So I think they did 
want national glory, which was tied to their personal status as well. So is there a sense in which Brexit was a big cause, which gave them the chance to do something that was different than just sort of managerial politics, the kind of post-war consensus? Yeah, I mean, they've been seeking a grand project, I think. And Hanamad identified it early, but, you know, in the early 90s, Brexit, hardly anyone was a Brexiteer. Even Hanan himself, I think, was more about reforming the EU at that time. So it wasn't really an obvious cause yet. And their problem also was that Thatcher had completed the Thatcherite project. And you saw that after she left, there really wasn't much they could add in terms of tax cutting, privatisation, selling off council homes. So Major does a bit of that. He does rail privatisation, doesn't go terrifically well. And now they're trying to sell off the last council homes, but there's really not much left. You're scraping the, the Thatcherite barrel. So they, they very much applauded Thatcher, but she'd left them with nothing more to do. So for a lot of the time, they're kind of seeking, well, what is our project? And then when Cameron calls the referendum, Hanan says, here is our project. And for a variety of reasons, that appeals to that group of people. For different reasons, and it appeals to 17 million voters. That group of people, I mean, how much of a sort of unitary group are they? Because, you know, to those of us looking on the outside, you'll see, you know, for example, the famous Gove knifing Boris on the eve of that first leadership election after Cameron went. You'll see, as you dutifully note in the book, that the sort of second referendum campaign aborted the was, was also run by, you know, privately educated Oxford alumni. You know, you see people on, obviously, Cummings, who's another one who you include in your kind of Oxbridge gang, you know, has spent the last year and a half merrily knifing Boris. And they don't seem to be showing a very united front. No, I mean, the odyssey is that almost the whole, all the factions in the British political elite went through Oxford. So Keir Starmer also arrives there in 1985 as having already done an undergraduate degree at Leeds, and then he does a law postgraduate course for two years at Oxford, where he's a leading light in the Labour Club. And the Milibands are there, Ed Balls, Yvette Cooper, but also the Cameron, you know, Cameron and Osborne, the leaders of the Remain cause, are there. So you have a splintered elite, let's say that the Cameron lot, the Labour lot, and then the Boris Johnson lot. And they're not united, and there's all sorts of coalitions of happenstance and of uh, opportunism like that between Johnson and Gove. But that's also part of the politics of the Oxford Union. Nothing personal. We're all pursuing our own careers. We're all pursuing our own statue. And sometimes we, we change sides. I think that's also the idea of politics as a game, I think, comes rather naturally to the British upper class because nothing really terrible has happened in Britain for centuries. You know, for centuries, no civil war, no revolution, no invasion, no famines. So what could possibly go wrong? I mean, if you're in Poland, say, you know, leaving the European Union is a much bigger deal. But Britain has no natural predators and the upper class feels what could go wrong. You know, we grew up in old vicarages, and then we went to medieval public schools, medieval Oxford, and now the medieval commons. There's a kind of stability in Britain that is very reassuring if you're, especially if you're from that caste. So you can play a bit with different ideals. Do you think there's any truth in that view? Or do you think, I mean, cynical and, you know, predisposed to inequality, though it may be, people who would say, look, we do have no natural predators. We can experiment a bit. We have bumbled along quite nicely with 
you know, if you like, entitled, well-educated toffs in charge? I think Britain will continue to bumble along. I mean, you know, the country has got poorer. Uh, average wages in 2025 are predicted still to be low, below 2008. You know, the tax burden is at a high. There's many people now who can't afford fuel or food. Things are not going brilliantly. That You're certainly not sort of Poland, where a catastrophe can very easily happen, let alone Ukraine or the Baltics. I mean, yes, Britain, protected by the seas, can afford to mess around a bit. And, you know, even at the bottom of society, people are hungry, but nobody's actually dying of starvation. There are food banks. So things are very bad at the bottom of British society, bad in a way I think most of us couldn't have imagined 20 years ago. But yeah, we're sorts of surviving. This thing of unseriousness that you make, there's a lovely quote you have from George Steiner saying that this land is blessed with a powerful mediocrity of mind. It has saved you from communism and it has saved you from fascism. In the end, you don't care enough about ideas to suffer their consequences. Do you think that's... <laughs> that points to something that what we're looking at is a diagnosis of a whole national malaise rather than a cabal of chances. I think not believing in complicated ideas has saved Britain, as Steiner says. You know, communism could get laughed out of court with its silly jargon. Fascism always seemed a little bit too serious to appeal to almost everyone. So you get P.G. Woodhouse mocking the, the black shorts. And I think there's something very healthy in that. There is, as a result, I think at the top, a, a sort of lack of attention to serious policymaking, and Boris Johnson is the apogee of that. So I think the lack of serious has had upsides in the past. But, you know, if you, if you ask now, well, what is the serious policymaking project animating this government? It's hard to identify. Is levelling up more than just a phrase? So then you get sort of uh, playing with the tabloids with we're going to deport people to Rwanda or we're going to have a fish war with France. It doesn't seem to me very serious. Yeah. Well, journalism is also part of this this story. I mean, it's not just the story of a cabinet. You talk about, I mean, I know it's one of my colleague Nick Cohen's frequent and I think legitimate complaints. He says, you know, we shouldn't put journalists in charge of policy. But, you know, there's a whole nexus, isn't there, that you identify that goes down kind of back and forth between politics and journalism, and in particular, obviously, the spectator, and into the upper reaches of the civil service as well. And in the private sector, there are, you know, <laughs> Rupert Soames turns up as the head of Serco, who's another old, old chum. Oxford Union president, yeah. Yeah, how do those, those kind of networks connect, as you see it? Well, what I, in the book, I talk about the rhetoric industries. And so journalism is kind of the entry-level rhetoric industry for these people. You and I stayed in it. Gove and Johnson and Hanan passed through it on their way upward. Cameron goes into another branch, public relations. And then you have um, the bar, which is, uh, you know, also its own branch, the rhetoric industries. But the kind of peak is the is the commons. And that's what they're, they're all headed to. So, yeah, I mean, politics is seen almost as an extension of journalism. And when the conservatives are in power, the spectator is a very important jumping off point for them. Now, the networks are, it's a very weird country in where the whole elite, the political elite, the business elite, and the cultural elite all end up in London, and very often have passed through the same one or two universities. They know each other. And so you saw that the chumocracy most strongly when the pandemic hits and Britain doesn't have enough protective equipment, 
And so, you know, what do you do? Well, Cumming says, we're not going to listen to the civil service with its boring, idiotic procedures. We're just going to move fast and break things. So let's get some PPE equipment now. So what do you do? You call your mates and you happen to know someone who went to Oxford with someone who has a company that can make masks. And so you call them. You need test and trace operation. Who's good at running a test and trace operation? Well, Dido Harding went to Oxford with Cameron, was base of Cameron's there, knows some of the other people in this set. And she'd run a, a major company, Talk Talk, admittedly in telecoms, not in health, doesn't really know much about health. Talk Talk wasn't a brilliant success, but still, let's get Dido on the line, put her in charge of test and trace, give her a 37 billion pound budget which seems to have zero impact, according to Commons, subsequent Commons Select Committee reports on the course of the pandemic. So we blow, I think it's 37 billion with nothing to show for it. So that's where these Oxford networks come in handy. These are the people you know best. A lot of them have ended up in the business elite. And so they're the ones you call. Cummings's position on this, I remember, was, you know, in the aftermath of all those good law project challenges, he said, look, if every day counted... Yes, we phoned our mates, but we phoned our mates because going through the usual processes would have taken three months, six months, a year and a half, and you know, literally every day people were dying. How much sympathy do you have for that line of argument? I mean, look, it was a stressful situation. People were dying. There was no PPE. Uh, the civil service is not typically good at moving fast. On the other hand, you spend $37 billion on test and trace, and it has no visible results. I mean, that is just a mind-boggling amount of money. And I would like to think that with proper procedures in place, that would not happen. I mean, Dido Harding didn't compete with other people to be put in charge of tests and trace. She was the only candidate that they had targeted, and her appointment was later ruled illegal. So, you know, civil service procedures are not just because civil servants are boring and stupid people, as Cummings sometimes presents them. Procedures are there for a reason. Yeah. I mean, the the one chumocracy appointment that seems to have reaped fantastic rewards was Kate Bingham. Was that was that the sort of the lucky the lucky shot in that one? Yeah, I mean, I discussed that in the book. I mean, it, it worked out brilliantly. Kate Bingham from Venture Capital had decades of experience in pharma, knew a lot about developments of vaccines, and she encourages vaccine development, sources vaccines, and the UK becomes the first Western country to start vaccinating its population in December 2020. I mean, that, that's a massive success and huge tribute. Look, I mean, Britain is a country with, with many top-level people in all sorts of industries. It has brilliant quants, brilliant scientists, engineers. It's just that the rhetoricians are the ones driving the train. And that, that's what I try and show in the book, that it's sort of upside down. I would rather have people like Kate Bingham running the country than people like Boris Johnson running the country. Yeah kind of seriousness about how do we actually do things would, would come in handy. Now, I mean, there is a sort of free market argument about the rhetoricians running the train to the extent that we have a press that's pretty unlike the press, I think, anywhere else in the world in terms of its, its interest in the witty, the attractive, the startling, the, you know, we, we've got a very lively sort of Press, but I mean, as people have often pointed out, the problem is that it then becomes possible or even necessary for those in charge to govern, you know, as the cliche went in the late 90s, by soundbite. That, you know, rhetoricians have an open goal because they actually, in order to govern and in order to get elected, they kind of need to say things that are 
flashy but insubstantial. I, I sometimes wonder now, but do they want to govern? Or do they just want to get re-elected? Which, I mean, Johnson is a master at getting re-elected. I mean, he's, he's won sort of every election he's ever put himself into. But what is the project? And, you know, get Brexit done, but now, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, for the fourth time, they've dropped the idea of checks on goods entering the UK. There's no prospect of trade deals. So what is the direction that they're taking Britain in? And restorations are very good at being elected. And I think it's very possible that Johnson will be re-elected in 2024 and will have ruled the UK by the end for nearly a decade. But there must be things you want to do, or at the very least, you must be very excited about the prospects of managing a country competently so that people get a little bit better off, so that transport works a little bit better all the time. That doesn't seem to be an animating passion of rhetoricians. I think largely rhetoricians are not the kind of people who know or care about that. Yes, but what I mean is that, that do you think there's a perverse incentive built in that essentially kind of bakes in the idea that rhetoricians will rise to the top in this country as they don't in others, which is the shape of our media? And do you think that's something that's remediable? I think the shape of the media, which I agree, encouraged that, that, you know, the most exciting headline, the best story wins. So, I mean, looking for the book, I went back to Oxford University student newspapers, one of which I wrote for in the 80s. And everyone was writing about Boris Johnson in 1984-5. Why? Because he's always been easy to write about. So those people are great tabloid fodder. Now, I think what's changing very significantly in Britain is the tabloids are dying. When I joined the FT 28 years ago, 20, yeah, 28 years ago, I think we had one-tenth of the circulation of The Sun. Now we're bigger than The Sun. We have more paid paying readers than The Sun. The Daily Mail is declining to the level of the FT. So, you know, the tabloids which sustained this rhetorical culture for so long, they are sort of dying. So I think in the end, you're likely to get a different kind of politician emerging. So you see, see some encouragement there from your point of view, in the direction of travel. Yeah, I mean, on the other hand, you, you have social media. So a lot of the art of the commons now is, is saying something in 30 seconds that will go viral on social media. And so people talk about the debating culture, the debating strength of the Oxford Union. William Hague was an exemplar of that. So Hague often won his debates with Blair at Prime Minister's Question Time. But that's a sort of older art, which is less appealing in the age of, as you say, the soundbites and now the social media clip. I mean, Hague's actually quite a good example, isn't he? Because he was absolutely of this tribe i mean not i think his background was was less exalted but he went through oxford he went through the oxford union he was a you know prodigious young debater he was an ardent thatcherite and yet you know looking at his interventions in public life now he tends to be obviously pretty substantial i think certainly besides the present crowd yeah, and I think that's also why he, uh, you know, he, he didn't quite have the, the soundbite skills, the entertainment value that someone like Johnston had. Look, some of these Oxford politicians have been very serious people. You know, Harold Wilson, Margaret Thatcher, Ted Heath, in their different ways, were very serious people. Haig, I think, has a seriousness in him, as does Rory Stewart, that a lot of the people at the top now don't. I think one big difference is that for decades, these Oxford prime ministers were people who'd been in the trenches and had kind of experienced 
one nation. They, you know, been captains and lieutenants writing letters to the mothers of working class privates who died. So they, they felt a kind of paternalistic responsibility to help protect the working classes. That was very much Macmillan, that was Attlee, that was Anthony Eden. And also they had seen that terrible things could happen, which, you know, my generation doesn't. And that encourages a, a lack of serious nowadays. Do you, how many of the, the people, the sort of players and onlookers in this game were willing to talk to you for this book? I mean, were, were you able to get some good access and some good interviews? I did have some, yeah. I mean, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, very forthcoming and very helpful. Dan Hanan, I had an extremely long, interesting conversation with him, which wasn't about, you know, is Brexit a good or a bad thing, which strikes me as a very, you know, argument that has run its course by now, but about where did it all come from? And he was extremely interesting on that. Uh, I interviewed Malcolm Turnbull, who was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and became Prime Minister of Australia and follows Britain very closely, close view of that. Rachel Johnson, who, of course, was um, in there amongst it all. Various people like that. I didn't really... Uh, Frank Luntz, actually, the American pollster who was at Oxford with Johnson, was extremely good on him. I didn't really encounter much unwillingness to talk. I think people were very happy to revisit sort of their, their halcyon days as students. Did, did anything any of them say, I, I think probably in particular Dan Hannon, make you revise your thesis? I mean... I noted, for instance, that when you were quoting Dan Hannan in a block, you, you had him say, you know, actually, it's not true that Boris took the decision to back leave in a kind of frivolous way, that he, he agonised over this. Yeah, I mean, look, I think if you're writing a book and you're going to be honest, you have to constantly revise your thesis. You have to constantly be open for, for new information. I mean, I don't see this book as an ideological rant. I see it as an investigation of the roots of where these people come from, where Brexit comes from. And I think in any good book, if at the end what you say is exactly what you thought you were going to say at the beginning, you're doing something wrong. A good book, you should be plunging down level after level as you disinter. And so you should be surprising yourself. And absolutely, when I spoke to Dan Hanan, I went away and I, it made me think very hard. And revise some things that I believed. Yeah, another another of the the things that was surprising, or at least maybe less well known, Norman Stone is a kind of great grey eminence right at the beginning of this, isn't he? The Oxford professor. Yeah, I hadn't realised that either. I mean, that was again was something I discovered while researching the book. So Stone is a great mentor to Dominic Cummings in particular. Also to Patrick Robertson, who is the student who leaves Oxford age twenty to create the Bruges Group which becomes incredibly influential for the next 25 years and helps make Brexit. And when Stone dies a few years ago, his funeral service is attended by virtually all of this cast. You know, Michael Gove is there, Dan Hanan is there, Alan Sked, the founder of UKIP, is there. Stone was very much a light to the budding Eurosceptics of the 80s. He was full-on Eurosceptic. I mean, anti-EU, but, you know, uh, spoke many European languages. He was an advisor to Margaret Thatcher. And, you know, I remember him as a don around Oxford. You know, he liked to drink and he was always out at undergraduate parties and in pubs drinking. So he was very easy. He was very approachable. Yeah. But he, he was another instance, like Dan Hannon, of, of someone who was Eurosceptic, but not, if you like, a little Englander. I mean, he only yeah. ended up in Turkey, didn't he? And he he's hugely kind of cosmopolitan as a European, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he'd self-taught himself all sorts of languages, uh, fluent Italian, I believe Hungarian as well. 
I mean, he, he could not be described as a Little England in part because he was a Scot. So I spoke to Dan Hanan about the Little England aspect. And I think the Oxford Brexit coalition is between sort of Europhile Eurosceptics like Hanan and Stone and then more Little Englander types, young fogies, uh, is the phrase Hanan used about them, who uh, have, have a kind of xenophobia that Hanan himself doesn't have. So you need all, you know, in, in a movement as broad as Brexit, there are many, many different types. Now, if the problem in the long term is, as you say, that Oxford creates a caste of sort of entitled people who you know, expect to be born to rule. I mean, forgive me if I'm misrepresenting you and correct me if I'm misrepresenting you. And who will tend to kind of move around in a pack and give each other jobs and so forth. You know, towards the end of your book, you start to say, you know, these are the remedies as you see it. And what are the remedies for that? I mean, do we make Oxford less good? Look, I'm an institutionalist on the whole, and I don't believe in revolutionary change. And I think Oxford and Cambridge are marvellous places in many ways and have great assets, some great academics, beautiful places. I, I would hate to see that diminished. But what I would love to see is an Oxbridge for all. So my remedy is let's drop undergraduate teaching, which is not what these universities particularly want to be doing. They lose money on it as well and which has always encouraged a kind of um, unfair access for people who go to a few private schools who've always got in much more easily, often without much competition. Let's keep the kind of brilliant graduate programs and improve them. Let Oxbridge keep making money out of corporate conferences, which they host all the time. And then let's have Oxbridge for all. Let's pick out bright, members of the population of all ages and all classes and say, you know, you're 38 years old, you didn't go to university or you want to give it a second go and, you know, you're not well off, but you've shown great intellectual ability, come to Oxbridge for a year, for three months, whatever it is. We'll run all sorts of courses. We'll pick up promising teenagers from unlikely places and we will give them some of that excellent teaching and that exposure to the beauty of these places. That's what I would really like to see. Not not diminish these assets, but spread them to the whole population or much more of the population. I mean, you do describe a Dutch university, I think, towards the end, where you say you were at this Dutch university and it had fantastically open access and there was a much flatter level of, of you know, privilege in terms of who got into which universities and that, you know, as you say in Holland, it isn't like there are one or two elite universities and the rest, you know, as is, is, is the kind of caricatural version of the UK. But what you describe, you say, you know, nobody there was doing any work. Yeah, it was my German university. So oh, sorry, I, German I, university. Yeah, my, my degree was history in German, and I spent the third year at the Technical University of Berlin. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a very good university. It was, on the whole, I would say, inferior to Oxford. And there were a lot of people who didn't do much work. There were some who did, who did a lot of work. And these universities have got better on the continent. You know, there's been a trimming away of students who would spend 15 years drinking beer, literally 15 years on, on state grants. But if I look at countries like Germany, Holland, Canada, Australia, Sweden, countries that are very successful, that don't have selective universities, I think a big advantage is you don't pick out the winners of society age 17 
and say, here's your membership card to the elites. It can hardly be taken away from you. And everyone else is really going to have to battle. Everyone who didn't get into Oxford or Cambridge is going to have to battle for the few elite membership cards that we're going to hand out later. I think that is very unfair because you're selecting people largely on their parental background or what kind of school they happen to go to. It also creates a huge amount of anger among the rest of the population, justified to some degree of talented people who are excluded for life from elite membership. And it doesn't allow people to develop a bit later on. And I think countries like Germany, Canada and Australia give people much more of that chance to say, well, here I am, I'm 25. I've learned a lot. I've gained some experience. Now let me into the elite. And Britain doesn't really offer much of an opportunity in that way. Why is it, you think, if if it does seem so kind of obvious to so many that, you know, we're governed by a cast of entitled upper-class twits, why do people keep voting for them? Uh, they don't always. I mean, there were, there were 30 years from 1964 to 1994 when neither major party was led by a privately educated person because they both decided, well, actually, the population is fed up with this. Then Blair breaks the taboo, a public schoolboy becomes Labour leader. And the Tories think, oh, well, we can go back to our traditional tribal method of anointing the kind of most eligible Exeter which is what the Tories had always done before. So then you get Cameron and Johnson. And, and it works. And I think one reason it works is because these people have been trained in rhetoric from age six in a way that the rest of the population couldn't even imagine that level of training. And secondly, because there's this British reflex among many British people, not all, of course, that the kind of upper class Eton and Oxford man is born to rule, that it's right that someone who looks like David Cameron should be prime minister, that he is the kind of epitome of a British prime minister. So although a lot of British people resent the kind of upper class, tough ruling caste, there's also a reflex that says this is the way it should be. Yeah. Though, though, as you also point out in the book, quite a lot of this particular crew of toffs aren't toffs. Well, I mean, toffs, there's toffs and toffs. So I talk about Johnson and Rees-Mogg, for example, of having slightly marginal toff status in that, you know, they don't come from this Erezries and caste and um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's grandparents are fairly humble people. But the British upper class is slightly porous. And so, you know, there's room for scholarship boys like Johnson, but it's not that porous. So Johnson's father did go to boarding school. He went to Sherburn. Aries Mogg's father went to boarding school. And so they're not as posh as Cameron. They're not as posh as the Duke of Devonshire. But compared to 99% of the British population, they're pretty posh. I estimate that 1% of British people go to boarding school as opposed to private school. And that is to some degree the kind of hereditary upper class. And so if you're outside that class, to most British people, Boris Johnson is pretty posh, even if to David Cameron, he doesn't seem that posh. <laughs> yes. Finally, I suppose, since this is at the centre of what you talk about in the book, you know, you're saying you think Oxford should expand its, its entry requirements and you know, become an Oxford for all. What would you do with the Oxford Union? I mean, it's not for me to ban the Oxford Union, much as I would be tempted to. But I would, I mean, one thing, I'm, one reason I wrote the book is to say to British people who didn't come from that caste, these are the conjurer's tricks. This is how they learn to speak. And don't believe that they know as much as they seem. 
and know that they have this rhetorical performance that is very well honed and was honed in large part at Oxford. And you can see through it. So I would like to have much greater awareness of the tricks of the Oxford Union, just as in political writing in the last 30, 40 years, we've had much more awareness of spin. I remember when spin was first discovered by political journalists in the 80s, it was, wow, they, the politicians are saying things and they're planning things that they don't really mean. They have these advertising tricks. Well, this is what I'm trying to do with the Oxford Union. They have rhetorical tricks. Would, would one way for would be to expand the teaching of rhetoric? Obviously, I've got skin in the game here, but to, to teach everyone the rhetorical tricks, not only as a defence against those who use them well, but as a means of, if you like, empowering them. Because one way or another, we're always going to have speeches made. We're all going, always going to have people standing for election. And those advertising tricks are always going to work to some extent. I would like to see a greater ability to kind of um, trick through bluffing. And, you know, good debating technique can do that. So someone like in the 80s, there were some Oxford students who later rose to great prominence who were famed for their debating forensic ability. Michael Gove, but also Nick Robinson, who became a presenter of the, TV, of the Today programme. Simon Stevens, who could have been, I think, Labour leader, but uh, chose to run the NHS instead. These were famed debaters who could pick on holes in the argument, point to factual twisting, logical twisting. And there is something beautiful and brilliant about that. These are not the skills that Johnson had so much. Johnson was always a kind of comedic performer. And it turned out that his skills were actually more saleable than the Govian debating brilliance. Well, he's a loss to journalism, we could say. Anyway, Simon Cooper, thank you very much indeed for your time. listening to the spectators books podcast I very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you